Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Take a break from our, ser- our series in the book of Genesis to consider uh, th- this uh, passage today. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 13 down to verse 35. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then the one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one, he, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys through the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you have given us your spirit, and we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, you would grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear the things Christ has done for us. Grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, we read in Acts chapter 1 that after Christ's resurrection— that he presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
Indeed, our our Lord appeared to many uh, people, individuals, as well as groups for the 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension. And here in our passage today, we read of one of those instances, one of those times in which he appears to two of his disciples dejected on the road to Emmaus. And this familiar and beloved story, which is only told for us here in Luke chapter 24, is very helpful in that as we consider it, I want to consider the mindset of these disciples. What was going through their mind? What they were thinking? What they were experiencing there in, in, uh, after the resurrection of Christ? And we will learn that although they should have known better, they were not prepared for what was about to happen. They had no idea that Christ would indeed rise from the dead. Well, as I said, our passage takes place on the very same day in which Christ rose. Later, perhaps uh, in, uh, uh, later on in the day, we read of these two disciples who are making their way from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus that's approximately seven miles away. They had made their way into Jerusalem the week, for, uh, the week prior in order to observe the Passover. In all likelihood, joining together with that crowd of people who, who sang out the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were probably part of that crowd of people celebrating what we call our Lord's triumphal entry. And no doubt their hopes were sky high as they saw Jesus finally enter into Jerusalem, making this public appearance, thinking that this is it. This is the time in which he will ascend to the throne and begin fulfilling all of our dreams. Well, all of their hopes were dashed when the one that they thought was the Messiah was crucified as a common criminal outside the city of Jerusalem on Friday afternoon. And after a day of rest on the Sabbath, after this very eventful and yet tragic Passover feast, they are now making their way back home. And as we see these two men making their way, they're doing what is pretty common to human nature. After events of such magnitude, after such tragic events that happen in life, it's helpful to be able to talk it out. And that's exactly what these two men are doing. They're, they're, they're discussing, they're talking, they're debating about the events that happened in order to try to process uh, all that they had just gone through. And the Greek here suggests that this was a, a, a very emotional dialogue, no doubt raising their voices, no doubt uh, uh, crying as they make their way back home. And perhaps consumed by this conversation, they're suddenly joined by this, this mysterious visitor, this fellow traveler. And in light of the fact that Jerusalem would have been packed with pilgrims uh, for the Passover feast, there was probably a pretty heavy amount of foot track traffic on this road. And yet this mysterious visitor comes up and joins together with them on their journey. And we are told in verse 15 that it was Jesus. We know, uh, the reader knows right off the bat who this mysterious traveler is. And yet we are told that, uh, that they, the two men, do not recognize Jesus. This isn't the only time in Scripture where Jesus appears to somebody after his resurrection and he's not immediately recognized. You may recall the time in which Mary Magdalene was weeping in the garden there and, and, and Jesus stood before her and he didn't, she didn't recognize him until he said her name. Well, here likewise, we, we, we see that these uh, two men are not able to recognize Jesus. And yet we're not told why. 
We're not told what exactly is preventing them from recognizing Christ. We have good reason to believe on other instances where Jesus is immediately recognized that his physical appearance had not radically changed. It's the same Jesus, and yet it's the same Jesus that had died that has now been raised. And so I don't think we ought to think that his appearance was any radically different. And if we seek to find any one reason why they were unable to recognize him, I think it's that they were not prepared to believe that Jesus had in fact risen. Ultimately, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something having to do with their eyes. It was something having to do with their heart. As our Lord ultimately rebukes them for being slow of heart. It was the hardness of their heart. It was the fact that they were not even expecting Jesus to rise, that they couldn't recognize him. And so this flies directly in the face of of modern skeptics today who speak of the early Christians as ignorant, gullible people who were willing to believe any sort of a wild, outlandish story, that they so wanted Jesus to rise from the dead that they, they, they willed it to happen in their own minds and, and perhaps even saw hallucinations of, of Jesus having been raised. And that's ultimately how we got this story that Jesus rose when, in fact, he didn't. That's what the modern skeptics say. And yet the Gospels, all of the Gospels, completely contradict that story. Every single Gospel account of the resurrection appearances are united in the fact that none of Jesus' disciples expected him to raise. None of them were expecting that to happen. And all of them, rather than being gullible people who believed it right away, were actually, as we see in our passage today, hardened skeptics. They were unwilling to believe that he had rose, even though they were faced with the risen Christ himself. I think Thomas is a good example, doubting Thomas in in John 20. After the rest of the disciples tell him that the Lord has been raised, he says, unless I see in, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into my, his side, I will never believe. You see, we call him doubting Thomas, but he was not the only one. All of this, the disciples were doubting, even when they were faced with the risen Christ himself, were told they worshiped, but some doubted. And so ultimately, I think it's a matter of the heart that these two disciples were unwilling to recognize who this man was and unable because of their sinful disbelief. And so Jesus coming up to them as they're they're engaged in this intense emotional dialogue, this intense uh, conversation, Jesus comes up and butts right into the conversation and says, what is this conversation you guys are having? What are you guys talking about? And the fact that this stranger came and butted into this intense conversation literally stopped these men in their tracks. Did you see their first response? We read that they stood and they looked sad. They couldn't even, they couldn't even get a word out. They were perhaps even shocked that this man would come up and say, hey guys, what are you talking about? We, we know better to go up to people who are clearly emotional and sad and come right in and, and burst into their conversation. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus does. He stops them in their tracks and leaves them speechless. And yet, even though they couldn't speak, their faces told it all. They were sad. They were dejected. You could read it all on the, you could read their emotions on their face. 
And finally, one of the two, a man by the name of Cleopas, spoke up. And he couldn't believe that this fellow pilgrim was, un, was not aware of all of the things that had just occurred. This was something that the entire city of Jerusalem was buzzing with. There was not a single soul in the city who did not know about what happened to Jesus. And so Cleopas says, well, what, do you have your head in the sand? Are you living under a rock? Do you not know what had happened? All of those things that had just occurred? And you've got to love our Lord's response. He says, what things? Tell me. Enlighten me. What has just happened? As if Jesus didn't know. It happened to Jesus. He knew what had happened. And yet, why is he asking Cleopas and the other disciple to recount the events? I think he's doing that because he wants them to, to show and demonstrate their own folly with their own words. So by the, word, the very words out of their mouth, they will show their own sinfulness and lack of belief and foolishness. And so Cleopas indulges Jesus, and he says, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on, so here are these two men. You've got to get this picture of this here. These two men are now telling Jesus about Jesus directly to him without knowing that it's him. And at first they speak very highly of him. They say that he was a prophet, mighty in word and in deed. This language, this, this uh, being mighty, a prophet, mighty in word and deed, are the very same words that are used to describe Moses, that Stephen uses to describe Moses in Acts chapter 7. So clearly here, they think very highly of Jesus, perhaps even referencing uh, the, the words of Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18, where he says, the Lord will raise up a prophet from among you like me. And when that prophet comes, you shall listen to him. So here, no doubt, they are firmly convinced that Jesus was a prophet. And not just any prophet, but a prophet like Moses. So speaking very highly of him, in verse 20, they also just, they recognize the complete travesty of justice and betrayal of their religious leaders in handing Jesus over to be crucified. So, so the, the religious leaders being involved, uh, in, being implicated in the death of Jesus Christ, they throw them under the bus. They recognize that these men were at fault for having unjustly condemned and killed this mighty prophet. But notice what they say in verse 21. In verse 21, they say, but we had hoped. We had hoped. Did you notice the tense there? That's past tense which means that although they had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem them, their hope, they, they were hoping no more. Their hopes were sky high, but ultimately their hopes died together with Christ on the cross. When the one that they assumed would be the, the, one, the, the mighty prophet, the mighty warrior, the one who would come and redeemed them, when he died on the cross, their hopes died together with him. And I think the fact that they were, uh, that, the, the fact that, uh, that they recognized Jesus as a, as a mighty prophet, but the fact that he died on the cross ultimately killed their hopes. Why? Because no matter how great of a person Jesus was, no matter how mighty of a prophet he was, if he is not raised, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile. Our hope is in vain. And they recognized that. If Christ is not raised, then all of that is for nothing. Paul says, we of all men should be most pitied. And that's how these men felt 
as they were walking back home. Because no matter how great Jesus was, if he died and did not raise, as they were thinking at the time, then all of that was for nothing. That's why they looked so sad. That's why they were dejected. That's why they said we had hoped, but we're not hoping anymore. But perhaps it was a good thing that their hopes had died. Because after all, what was it that they were hoping? They say that we were hoping he'd be the one to redeem Israel. And yet, what was the type of redemption that they were picturing in their minds? Well, undoubtedly, it was a redemption. It was a, it was a deliverance from the earthly powers that they were held in bondage. Ultimately, it was, it, it was widely assumed in the first century that the Messiah would be a mighty military hero and that he would be the one who would deliver them from the tyranny of the Romans who were, since they were living under Roman occupation. That was the type of redemption they were looking for. And yet, rather than dis- destroying the Romans, it was the Romans who crucified him on the cross. And that's why ultimately Paul tells us that, tells us that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. In 1 Corinthians 1, it's a stumbling block to be told your Messiah was crucified as a common criminal. He did not destroy the earthly powers, but rather submitted himself to their powers in order to be treated uh, in, in this horrible way. And yet, as I said, perhaps it's a good thing that their hopes had died because their hopes were set too low. They were thinking of an earthly redemption, whereas Christ came not to redeem us the first time from earthly powers, but rather to redeem us from sin, from Satan, and from death itself. You see, the redemption that Christ accomplished was far greater than anything that these men could, could, uh, could even imagine. And he had to do it, as we will see, through suffering on the cross. But they go on to describe the fact that it is, in fact, the third day since all of these things had occurred. Now, this time indicator should sound familiar to us. The third day. We all know what happened on the third day. But guess what? That should have sounded familiar to them, too. Why? Because Jesus, in, on multiple occasions prior to going to the cross, explicitly told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die, but on the third day he will rise again. I'll just give you one example. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He tells his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That sounds pretty clear to me. In Mark's gospel, he, uh, Mark has Jesus repeat that, not once, not twice, but three times to his disciples. But no matter how many times Jesus predicted his impending death and inevitable resurrection on the third day, that message went in one ear and right out the other. Those men were completely unaware and, and not even remotely expecting Jesus to rise on the third day. So how ironic is it? for Cleopas to tell Jesus, well, it's the third day since these things have happened. But guess what? That's not all. That's not all in the story that he's relaying to Jesus. He says, moreover, there were certain women from our group who who went to the tomb, and they found that the tomb was empty. And they even reported this, this amazing story of having seen angels who said that Jesus lives. And yet... And, on top of that, some of our group went to verify their story, and it was exactly as they had described the tomb was empty. And yet, they don't believe. 
they refuse to believe. Why? Well, for one, it's women. Sorry, ladies, but in the ancient world, nobody believed women. Women's testimony were not even admissible in court. And so it is uh, quite an astonishing thing that all of the gospel accounts are united in the fact that women are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And how was the response? Just look back, uh, look back there in uh, Luke 24, in, uh, in verse 10. We read, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now how do they respond? Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. These words seem to them an idle tale. These ladies are hysterical. We're not going to believe them. They're making stuff up. Even though the story was verified by Peter and John. And here we have these two disciples who have heard a credible story that Christ has been raised, and yet they refuse to believe it. And what do they say to Jesus himself? Him they did not see. Said the men, to Jesus himself, while looking in his eyes, saying, yeah, they didn't see Jesus. Guess what? (laughs) They see him right now. And so here we see this amazing thing. Uh, These men who are refusing to believe, even though they are confronted with with accumulating evidence that Jesus has, in fact, been raised. What's at this point that Jesus has to interject? He's heard enough. He has to interject. And what does he say in verse 25? He says, oh, foolish ones. Now here Jesus isn't name-calling. He's not being rude. He's telling it like it is. He's calling them fools because they are acting like fools. A fool is one who says in his own heart, there is no God. A fool is one who lives and acts as if God does not exist or cannot interact, uh, cannot work his powers here on earth. And that's exactly how these men are functioning. They are acting like fools because they are refusing to believe that Christ can be raised. And so he tells them. He rebukes them for being fools. He says it is through their dullness and hardness of heart. It was was the hardness of their heart that was preventing them from believing in the resurrection, even though they were more and more confronted with mounting evidence that Christ has been raised, even though it was Christ himself standing in front of them. And yet, notice how Jesus rebukes them. He doesn't rebuke them for not believing the women's testimony. He doesn't even rebuke them for, believing, for listening to him when he had told them repeatedly that he would raise them the third day. But what does he rebuke them for not believing? He rebukes them for not believing their Old Testament and for not believing their Bibles, not believing the prophets who had prophesied and spoke about what Christ would do. Jesus, on another occasion, he told the the scribes and Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You see, Jesus rebukes these disciples because they weren't believing their Bibles. And so he has to educate them. He has to teach them. And so we read in verse 27, beginning with Moses, beginning with uh, the books written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the law or the Torah, Jesus begins explaining, launching into a survey of the Old Testament, continuing throughout the rest of the Old Testament, which in in the Hebrew uh, mentality, the Old Testament is in three main parts, the law, the Torah, the the prophets, the Navim, and the writings, the Katavim. 
And so Jesus launches into all the Old Testament, explaining to them the things concerning himself. Now, we are not told what he said. His sermon is not recorded, and many people lament that fact. Wouldn't it have been great to have been a fly on the wall? Wouldn't it have been great to have been walking together with these two men to hear our Lord exposit the Scriptures? And surely that would have been an amazing thing. But for some reason, in his providence, God did not record that sermon. And yet, we don't actually need that. Why? Well, because we have the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts is Luke part two, where Luke actually goes on to describe how it is the apostles exposit the Old Testament to show that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. But we should consider the fact that when Jesus exposits the Old Testament for these two disciples, his sermon actually has a main point. He's not just talking generally about how Christ is is, uh, the point of the Old Testament, but there's actually a very specific point that uh, that we see there in verse 26. And the point is this, that the Christ must suffer first and then enter into glory. When you look at the Old Testament, there's one main point that emerges, that suffering comes first and then glory. Peter characterizes this as well. In 1 Peter 1.11, he speaks of the message of the prophets being the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I hope, for those of you who have been with us in our time of Genesis, that you've really appreciated this, that you see uh, this main pattern emerge. The late R.C. Sproul has a, a, a great survey of the Old Testament, and the title of that survey, sorry, it's a survey of the whole of Scripture. The title of that survey is From Dust to Glory. From Dust to Glory. I don't know who came up with that name, but it's a great name. Why? Because it helpfully summarizes the whole story of redemption, the whole story of the Bible, that God created man from dust, but he destined him for glory. He created him from dust, but destined him to be glorified. But ultimately, because of the fall, where did Adam take that, 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 uh, that destination? Well, he turned it from dust to dust. As a result of the fall, the curse came upon us, and we are subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the eternal punishment in hell because we have sinned against God. And so how is that going to be turned around? How are we going to be brought back from dust to that state of glory again? How how are we going to be redeemed from the curse that came upon us because of our sin? Well, somebody had to become a curse for us. That's why suffering must come first. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so in order to blaze this trail to glory and to take us with him in his train, Christ needed to suffer first. That's what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says, we see him, speaking of Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting Speaking of that whole plan of the Old Testament, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
And so the road to glory is a road of suffering. The road to glory for Christ Jesus before he could enter into his kingdom as the exalted king must uh, go, it must also be the road to the cross. That is ultimately how he is exalted. And as plain and simple as that sounds to us, we need to recognize and, and grasp how completely foreign this must have been for Jesus' original audience. For these two men to be hearing these things, to be thinking, wait a minute, how can that be? Because they were expecting a victorious king, not a suffering servant. And, and ultimately, in order to believe this message, this essential aspect of the gospel, it required the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. As we see later on in verse 45, that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Ultimately, they couldn't believe that Christ had been raised from the dead because uh, without the power of the Holy Spirit. As, these, uh, as we get back to our story, as they arrive at their destination... As they reach the town of Emmaus, we read that Jesus acted as if he was going to go further. And you have to wonder, well, where was he going? Ultimately, he was testing them. He was testing their hospitality to see if they would invite him in, to see uh, if they wanted to hear more about what he had said. And that's exactly what they do. Clearly enthralled by this mysterious traveler who had this remarkable knowledge of the scriptures, by the way. They invite him to come in and to stay with them. They say, it's, it's almost evening, come and stay with us, and, and you can go on your journey the next, uh, in the morning. And as Jesus receives their invitation and comes into their house, he continues to surprise them, since he, being a guest, is now acting as the host. Sitting at table, Jesus takes the bread. That was the job of the host, to take the bread and to say the blessing, the barakah, and to break it and to distribute it to the visitors. But he's the visitor. And yet Jesus takes the main seat, he takes the host seat, and he breaks the bread, and it's as Jesus blesses the bread, as he thanks God for the provision given, and as he breaks the bread and hands it to them, then their eyes are open. Then they realize who this person has been all along. And as soon as they recognize who he is, he vanishes. He's gone. Why did he vanish? Well, this is in keeping with all of his post-resurrection appearances. Jesus being physical, later on we we read that confirmed in chapter 24. He says, feel me, I have flesh and bone, I'm not a spirit. And in order to prove it anymore, he says, do you have anything to eat? And he eats some, uh, some fish before his disciples. He's physical and yet he is able to come and go. And he does that because he's now training his disciples for this next phase in redemptive history where he will be physically present in heaven, from where he will send his Holy Spirit. And ultimately, that's to our advantage. If Jesus were here on earth physically present, he could only be in one place at one time. But the fact that he is physically present in heaven means he could send his Spirit to us so that he could say, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus vanishes from their eyes. And yet what leaves lasting impression? What was it that that they just couldn't get over? In verse 32, they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures? Notice it wasn't primarily the sight of Jesus, but his teaching that that left the lasting impression. It was his teaching, it was his exposition of scripture that burned their hearts as they realized the truth of what he was saying. 
So in response, we read in verse 33 that that same hour, although it was getting late, although the sun was setting, they nevertheless made that journey back to Jerusalem. Why? Because it couldn't wait. They had good news, and they wanted to share that news with the rest of the disciples who, are, who were gathered, uh, still gathered in Jerusalem. But before they could even arrive, before they could even get their words out to say that Christ is risen, they read, we read that it's the 11 and the rest of the disciples who tell them that the Lord is risen indeed. You see, at some point, either shortly before or after his appearance to these two disciples, we're told that he also had appeared to Simon Peter. And ultimately, it was because of that that these these disciples were now assured of the good news that Christ had been raised. And so here we read of this this good news that now the disciples are embracing the story, although they they were not expecting it, although they should have known better, they were not expecting that Christ had been raised. Why? Because they were not prepared They could not understand and believe why it was necessary that Christ should suffer first and then enter into glory. As we consider this amazing passage, perhaps in conclusion, we might try to apply it to our lives today. As we consider the, the fact that these disciples were almost willfully blinded to what the scriptures clearly taught. They were willfully ignorant and blinded of the fact that it was absolutely necessary for the Messiah to suffer before entering into glory. I wonder if we today as New Covenant believers living some 2,000 years after these events, I wonder if we're guilty of the same thing. Not in willfully ignoring the fact that Christ had to suffer, but willfully ignoring the fact that we have to suffer. Because the New Testament is pretty clear. It is absolutely necessary for us as followers of Jesus Christ to suffer in order to be glorified together with him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now keep in mind, bear in mind, our suffering is fundamentally different to the suffering of our Lord. Our suffering is not for an atonement for our sins. God doesn't punish us because he's angry at at us. He's not punishing us for our sins. Our sins have been paid for at the cross. So our suffering is different than the suffering of our Lord, and yet it follows after the same pattern. He blazed a trail through suffering to glory, and now he bids us to take up our cross and follow after him. Why? Not to atone for our sins, but to make us more like Jesus. You see, our Lord is pleased to use the suffering that we experience in this life to make us more and more like Christ. So that we might be able to experience, to tap in to the power of his resurrection, we must first undergo the fellowship of his sufferings. As Paul tells us in Philippians Chapter 3, and we'll conclude with this. Paul, speaking of his hope in life, of what, what really at the end of the day is most important for him, it's this, to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And at that point, I think all of us want to say, amen. I want to know Jesus. 
I want to know the power of his resurrection. But then Paul goes on to say, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, we like to think it's glory all the time. It's glory that leads to more glory. But in fact, Christ has called us to suffering in order that we may achieve glory. We go through this suffering to become like Christ so that we may share in his suffering, so that we may share also in the power of his resurrection, so that we will be glorified together with him at the last day. May the Lord use that to strengthen our hope, even as we go through our earthly life, even as we go about our lives this week. May we love God and serve our neighbor. Amen.